About 10 years ago, a wise man once said, Hide your kids, hide your wife. Hide your kids, hide your wife, and hide your husband. The intruder's coming to get you. Now in 2020, I'm not asking you to hide your kids and hide your wife, but when it comes to protecting your family, there's a lot we should be doing given the challenges and the circumstances we find ourselves in. Given the topic, I'm joined today with Sheikh Mohammed Al-Shannawi, originally from New York City, who has now moved to Pennsylvania and based at the Masjid of Isa ibn Maryam, Jesus, the son of Mary. But before we do begin the podcast, a kind request if you can please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell to keep up to date with one part content. Let's get started. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome to our first ever online podcast where we are joined with none other than one of my favorite mashaykh. Uh, sorry to put you on the spot. Um, Sheikh Muhammad Shinawi, how is everything? Where Alhamdulillah. Jazakallah khairan. I thank you for having me. Alhamdulillah. I admire you and all the brothers at One Path. You guys really do work of value and I. And I, uh, I pray that Allah take you from one success to the next, inshallah. So you left New York City, but why would you leave New York City? New York City is like one of the best cities to, to live in, isn't it, in America? I mean, it depends who you ask. I think it has a, a lot to do with my perspective changing upon becoming a parent. It's still, you know, it's, uh-huh. the, uh, it's now the place I hate, I tell people, containing the people that I love. Really? Because my, my roots are there. Uh, but the challenges of the grind of the city and also the, the lack of uh, control over instilling values in a family or in a community because everything is so invasive and congested in New York City really became a turnoff for me after a while. Aside from the two hours of parking every night after Isha. Yeah, so anyways, I guess you've brought up the topic uh, that we planned on speaking about today, which is raising children in today's, uh, I guess, challenging society. You know, we're living in a time, 2020, I guess, apart from being the year of COVID, it's the year where so much change is happening at a rate we've never seen before. And as you said, Sheikh, it's becoming even harder to to, to raise children or to safeguard the youth in today's society. So um, how do you feel that the challenges that we're facing today have impacted, uh, I guess, the, the youth in terms of what's happening on the ground today? Allah al-Musta'an. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. I mean, this, when you take a step back and try to analyze what exactly is happening uh, with, it's not Western society anymore, right? Because the, the tech age mm-hmm. and the globalization that technology has uh, facilitated um, has put this everywhere, right? It, it has become a global culture. And what exactly are the underpinnings of that global culture? What are dictating it? Uh, what is its framework? In reality, it is, it is a secular project. And a secular project mm-hmm. is a project that uh, sequestrates, isolates religion and all that religion uh, enjoins from public life. That's the definition of secularism, right? Uh, that yeah. you can have whatever religion you want so long as we can't notice it. So long as it's locked into one hour at Jum'ah or one hour at Sunday Mass in a church or something. Uh, mm-hmm. And so God has been purged from the collective modern mind. That's basically what has happened. And when that mm-hmm. happens, when you forget God, you forget what it means to be human. You forget who you are. As Allah Azza wa Jal said, uh, they f- don't be like those before you who forgot about God and so they forgot about themselves they forgot who they were as well 
And these are certainly the, the people who are rebellious. And so they became rebellious to even the cosmic order, the most uh, evident givens of reality, of existence, became up for debate. Like when the, the truest reality ever, which is God, became up for debate, then everything will follow, right? If the ultimate truth is now debatable truth and relative truth, then what does it mean to be human? Or are we animal? Does it, what does it mean to be man? What does it mean to be woman? Is there even a difference? Does the difference make a difference? And so the liberation, the progress supposedly between quotes, right, of uh, the modern culture um, has sadly conflated uh, advancement in infrastructure, advancement in science, advancement in, in inventions, industrialization, uh, with advancement in morality, as if that needs to make progress as well, as if human morality uh, was ever backwards, the same way architecture was backwards and science was backwards, and mm -hmm. now it made strides, as if morality needs to make strides as well. And that's quite unfortunate. Um, mm -hmm. And we are seeing that now, that what is dictating um, the popular thought, popular culture, what the loudest voices uh, arbitrarily choose as rights and wrongs, as acceptables and yeah. objectionables. And, and that's exactly the truth because right now, who's defining what is morally right? We have music, we have pop culture, we have films, television shows, and all forms of pop culture which define what is morally right. And if we look at it, mainstream pop culture, mainstream music, mainstream films are dominated by what? We're talking about Those sexualized themes. imagery. Absolutely. We're talking about drugs. We're talking about violence. We're talking about uh, promiscuity. We're talking about all these vices that are being propagated by mainstream culture. And look, they know very well there are odds with religion. They know very well there are odds with uh, those who believe in God. Even we saw just recently, perhaps the worst song ever released on the face of this planet. Um, I, I think everyone already knows what I'm speaking about. It's actually trending at number one on the billboard right now at this very moment or number two. It's the worst song that's ever written in the face of humanity. It, it's completely uh, over, overly sexualized, promiscuous. It's promoting a lifestyle which is downright dangerous for young girls, for young boys, but it's defining what's right. And even um, the artist herself, she came out, and I'm not trying to no, take shots at her or, or put her down in any sense. We ask a lot to guide her and to guide all of us. We, we don't know, perhaps she might become uh, a great Muslim one day and we ask Allah to make that possible. Amen. But she even said, she goes, the only people who have a problem with this song are overly religious people. Yeah, and she knows very well that she's going against the grain of those of, 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 a, of, a, God, of a God conscious society. But it's funny herself, um, she would also say uh, stuff like, I don't want my child to listen to this song. Like she knows what she's doing is wrong. Like she knows downright like what she's doing is not necessarily the best thing to, to, to be teaching society. But it's unfortunate that these are dictating what mainstream culture thinks, feels, and um, I guess how their hearts are positioned. Yeah, and this is so unfortunate because especially for us as Muslims. I mean, it is hard, and this is why it was of such wisdom that the prophets always began with the oneness of Allah and calling people back to their creator mm -hmm. and their maker, because it is hard to have a conversation with anyone if you can't agree on the metrics, right? If you can't agree on the foundation, mm -hmm. then we're going to be speaking in silos. You're, you have your ruler, mm -hmm. your measuring stick, I have my measuring stick. Uh, 
And so where does morality come from? Does it come from, you know, I mean, moral philosophy is a big subject and we don't want to make this like overly verbose, mm. you know, complicated and mm -mm. stuff. But uh, we get our value system from the sacred knowledge that Allah privileged us by, by sending to us through the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, so and preserving for yeah. us despite all of the contentions and challenges throughout the ages, it's still with us. And we know mm -mm. that the hearts only find rest in connecting with God. And so everyone out there is looking for what we have, and yet we may even lose sight of this. You know, interestingly, it's not even like the Quran and Sunnah tell you that you'll never be happy without connecting with God because you were created to devote your life to Him. It is that we see it time and time again that so many of these uh, public figures, these celebrities, these entertainers, they are one scratch away from a meltdown. One scratch away from a meltdown. Uh, and yet we continue to have this cognitive dissonance where we deliberately disconnect ourselves from that reality that we want to stay in denial about to chase after a shadow. And that that is quite painful. You know, the Arab, I don't usually like importing like Arabic poetry or idioms and stuff, yeah. but it is, it is heart-wrenching. They used to express this sort of behavior by saying, You know, it is like such a tragedy when you see a camel die in the middle of the desert out of thirst while it's carrying jugs of water, luggage, that are fastened to its back. Like we have all of mm. the solutions that we're supposed to be delivering to people and we ourselves are not the first or even the last beneficiaries, beneficiaries of them sometimes. And so it's time mm. for us to be polite and you know be sensitive to people possibly genuinely not knowing this about their Islam, speaking about the Muslims in particular, but at the same time assert that we have the remedy to the ills of modern society that do not have inner peace, that show time and time again that they are fragile and they are a shell of what it means to be a fulfilled human being. Uh, and we need to begin that even with our children because they may have never tasted it. And so they wonder, yes, I know that this entertainer and that entertainer have these huge problems in their personal lives that I'm going to like deliberately ignore because it's momentarily gratifying to enjoy their entertainment, whether it's comedy or music, but I haven't seen a better alternative. Show it to me. And so that's our task. And it's a mighty task that uh, I wish more and more of us, inshallah, um, can feel honored uh, to enlist in. I guess, I, I guess it's so true because like at the end of the day, the research is there. The research is very clear. It's, it's, it's as clear as day. Research has been done and it shows that the more our children are exposed to these thoughts, they end up adopting such views, whether they're exposed to drugs and alcohol on the screen, whether they're exposed to sexualized behavior, they will eventually end up adopting them. So I guess it's up to us to show them this isn't the way, there is a better way, and Islam offers that way. And I guess... It That's also, really what it is. Um, you know, up, it doesn't yeah. even need stats. Like, I'm sorry to cut you off, but mm. like as, as one mm -hmm. person who is a music addict, alhamdulillah, he's on route to memorizing yeah. the Quran now. But he said to Allah me Akbar. that... Uh, you just need to look at how someone is dressed to know what kind of music they mm. listen to. The correlation is, you know, uh, as clear as day, as you put it. And so the effect of this is real. And so we need to provide a, a counterculture and package it right and consistently uh, share it with the world, important on others, 
until it picks up the momentum that it deserves. That's the part of the equation guess, that Allah left for the believers. I guess I guess someone told me, I don't know if it was you or someone else, subhanAllah, they said in the, in the Quran, Allah says, قُلْ جَاءَ الْحَقِّ وَزَهَقَ الْبَاطِلِ You know, all the haqq needs to do, all the truth needs to do is arrive, present itself for batil, for, for, for falsehood to dissipate, for falsehood yeah. to disappear. As long as it's there, as long as it's there and it's present, when someone tastes, I guess, the sweetness of Iman, he won't go back to the, I guess, the deceptions of, 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 a, of a life that is... Yeah, that's very important. I mean, Muslims need to do that. And it's, Muslims need mm. to realize that there's no point in you uh, going the extra mile to tell us that there's a fire in the building. We all know there's a fire in the building, mm. but we need someone to show us the, the exit, yeah. you know? It's like the one that says... Yeah. Go ahead, like the one that says الناس, the one that says the people are destroyed he's the one who's going to destroy them just like we get it the people are destroyed but I guess we've got to do something yeah yeah and inshallah the khair will remain uh, until the end of time so providing people building what is absent as uh, as Badi'u Zaman the, one of the forefathers of modern uh, Islamic reform in, in, in Turkey he used to say that Anursi uh, rahimahullah he used to say that we are more in need of building what is absent than destroying what is present. Yes, we will voice our discontentment, our disapproval of all this stuff. But at the end of the day, people will not sign out of that to avoid. You have to build what's absent and, what, and then the falsehood that is present. It's not that we're going to ignore it, but we need to be more invested in lighting candles than the cursing the darkness, as they say. And anything else is just a distraction, just venting, useless, frustrating, drives us further and further down this feeling that we're just feathers in the wind. We have no self-determination, no ability to make a change in our reality. No, we will. And Allah told us how the story is going to end. It's just a matter of are we going to be a part of it or not, inshallah. I guess it just comes back to the paradigm of a Muslim, how he views the world. And that's, that's a beautiful way to look at the world. And I guess it can help keep us afloat just constantly focus on building because if we constantly focus on the corruption around us wallah it's going to overwhelm us because yeah. it just never ends it just never ends and subhanallah sheikh i wanted to uh, bring something up with you i guess in today's culture in, in mainstream culture they're constantly advocating the need to teach and expose our children to these concepts so for instance we'll see um that disaster of a film uh, so many disasters, subhanAllah. <laughs> that disaster of a film on Netflix whereby children were, were sexually exploited for the, in the name of film, in the name of art. And even we've seen in, um, in Denmark just recently, they had a television show with children where they got, uh, like, I don't want to even go there, but they, they exposed them to, to images that they shouldn't be seeing in the name of teaching children. And subhanAllah, to... to, to give a personal insight just about a couple of weeks ago i went to uh, the equivalent of walmart in australia and i was in the children's book section looking for some books for my son alhamdulillah and i came across a book about sex education for kids now bear in mind this is like like probably 10 year old kids and just out of curiosity you know i wanted to see how bad could it possibly be i opened the book and wallahi you get ashamed to even look at some of the images they had in there they show everything. And I guess, it, I guess this concerns us so much when it comes to being in a position of influence where you're in a position of teaching people. Where do you draw the line 
by potentially harming children by exposing them to such topics, but at the same time, rightfully teaching them so they can be aware about the harms of, I guess, um, you know, uh, sexualized society and stuff like that. Because the, the lines are very blurred because they say they're educating, but in, in my opinion and the opinion of so many others, they're harming a lot of children right now. Okay, Bismillah. So there are some assumptions in this question. The assumption is, mm. should I be the one to open their eyes to this? You mm. will not be the one that opens their eyes to this. Society will beat you to it. <laughs> their, mm -hmm. their biology will beat you to it. Like, don't be in a rush. It's going to happen. Because people have this debate, like, should we totally seclude ourselves, isolate ourselves? And we're not isolationists as Muslims. But, mm -hmm. uh, but a, a, a relative or a partial degree of, of seclusion is healthy and prescribed by the Prophet ﷺ to mitigate the harms of prevalent corruption. And that is in his sunnah. Uh, but what I want to say is that some people say, I sit my kids down and watch this movie with them so I can point out the harms for them. This is just... This is... Yeah. What, what do you do with the, the fact that Allah Azza wa Jal says that the heart is like a sponge? You know, they soaked up this and they soaked up that. What do you do with Allah Azza wa Jal saying, مَا جَعَلَ اللَّهُ لِرَجُلٍ مِنْ قَلْبَيْنِ فِي جَوْفِهِ الْأَحْزَابِ That Allah did not uh, place two hearts inside of one man. It's all one hard drive. <laughs> what they saw got imprinted and what you said got imprinted. And so there is a way to address these things appropriately and that's probably like is, is a series on its own that our deen teaches us. Like we should not be looking at, for example, inappropriate parts as defined by Islam's sharia, right? Islam's legal mm -hmm. system, what is inappropriate, even if we were adults, because we mm -hmm. are taught that this is the beginning of the link uh, of the chain and the end of the chain is fornication. And so if you belittle or underestimate the danger of sparks, you're gonna find yourself in a fire. And, and this is something that we should really be proud of as Muslims because the societies that may look at us as being overly conservative, meaning overly strict, uh, you know, uptight regarding our gender interactions, for example, these are the same societies that uh, the 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 poisons and the venoms and the bile and, uh, is overflowing from their society of unwanted sexual harassment and rape cases and this, that, and the third. And so it's like, how can you come off for, with your high horse and critique me that I'm being too strict as if you have an alternative that works, right? Like you loosen the valve a little bit and still there's no problems. Our society, look at the pornography statistics, look at the, the rape and sexual harassment statistics, look at the Me Too movement and what it has uncovered, right? Of things that were hush-hushed for so long. Mm. Uh, so the idea is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam taught us uh, to lower our gaze, young and old, period. The, the yeah. more you downplay the importance of that, the more these images, and we're in a, a, a super, hyper, ultra, image-saturated world, will imprint on your heart, and they will be difficult for you uh, to ignore. And so every look uh, is consequential. That's one part of it. The, the other part of it is when this, when this just occurs, when they see this in the streets, or they see this on the billboards, or see this on the screens more than anything else, when they start feeling you know, the, their body changing and their hormones, that is when it would be appropriate in 
the most uh, modest and uh, discreet fashion to teach them how to deal with this. Uh, you know, it's just, there's just so much to talk about, but just keep in mind that the Quran and Sunnah, when they speak about sexuality, they speak with surnames. They speak in innuendo of sorts, right? I don't know if India, innuendo has negative connotation. But, uh, you know, all, the Prophet wasallam taught us that when one of you approaches his family, right? Let them say the following supplication. This is a dua, a prayer. We are taught to be protected in our very pure, intimate relations with our lawful spouses. He said, approach their family. Even, even the Qur'an, not even sexuality, the Qur'an says, and when one of you comes back from the lowlands, the lowlands were the place where they used the bathrooms. And so speaking, because you know, this creates a psychological barrier as well between just mm. being raw and crude and uh, saying things as they are in a way that is vulgar, in a way that is vulgar. Allah made humans human by virtue of certain qualities, certain moral traits. Of them is haya. Haya is healthy shame. I know shame has, uh, it's not an accident that it has like all negative connotations right now. But shame is a quality of God. Of course, with Him it's befitting His majesty, not like ours. But Allah, one of His qualities, haya, is shame. The Prophet ﷺ had more shame than anyone else. Healthy shame. Musa السلام, was said to be a man of intense shame in Sahih al-Bukhari. Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu an. And, and notice none of, these, none of these are regarding women, by the way. Of course, women have a, are called to a heightened sense of haya as well. And it's a beautiful concept and even more beautiful in interpersonal relations in women than in men. But notice how all those examples were not women. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is genderless. And then the angels, by the way, also uh, are genderless and, and they have haya. The prophets of God, Muhammad sallallahu and Musa alayhi these are men. The person known for his most intense haya shame in this ummah is Uthman, that's a man, right? And so this pervasive value, haya, what I'm trying to get to is it's part of being human. Uh, meaning a dignified human being. It means you have a conscience. It means you're sensitive to ugliness, obscenity, immorality. It is your inner compass. If you purge that, you don't get it back. Like it's not that easy. So you're not going to like make someone more sensitive to wrong by having them observe and process and take in all this wrong and being told that they're wrong. No, this barrier, this discomfort which gets purged by overexposure, right? This discomfort is something you want to preserve because part of being an upright human being. That is why the word haya, haya, healthy shame, is clearly related to the word haya, life, because you're not fully alive in the human sense unless you have this haya. And that is really what I want to say here. If you want to protect, we want to build more than destroy. Stop responding to every last music video and meaning to your children, right? And chasing after yeah. because then it'll, it'll be an endless project. But if you build in them this line of defense, like this sense of shame and conscience uh, and observance of God, Haya, of course, has, is driven by many factors. Of them is the fact that you recognize God's greatness and your tininess and God's blessings and your neglect and so many factors uh, fuel our Haya. If you build that in a person, then come what may. Parents alive or dead, they have developed like a, an independent religiosity. 
that and you know and this is another thing that we want to keep in mind that Islam if built right within the individual yes you're supposed to censor as best you can from evil so that you don't you know put your guard down by allowing yourself to be near them unnecessarily because if you put your guard down you deserve to 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 suffer the consequences but let us say like in the globalized culture you are forced to be surrounded by these negative factors can you survive yes you can survive what's the proof the proof is that <laughs> Yusuf السلام, was forced in a place that was, you know, uh, toxically sexualized, right? And he survived. Allah says, We averted this away from him because he was of our chosen servants. God chose him and it caused his iman to flare enough to incinerate the temptations. The Prophet وسلم, the earliest Sahaba were in a, were in a society that was kafir, that was, uh, they were disbelievers, rejecters of faith, and yet they stayed Muslim, right? In a non-Muslim majority, rather a hostile to Muslim majority, and they still survived. Why? Because they did the Islam thing right, if you will. They, the Islam yeah. project was in full force uh, being constructed sure. within them. I guess that takes me to, to a thought I was actually having before. Like, I guess... It's going to come from a place of bias in your regard because I know that you did leave the society that you were in. Now, many Muslims will come out today and they say, look, I can't live in this country. I can't live in this area. I can't live in this city. I have to go somewhere more Islamic to safeguard my children, especially when it comes to their children. Now, I know you yourself have, have left where you were before being New York City. Do you see this as something which is necessary or Muslims can, if they just safeguard their families, safeguard their homes, they can survive. Okay. I guess it's coming from a place of bias, I guess. But No, guess I'll can. try to act like I'm not biased. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll pretend. No, no. It is, poss it is necessary for those who can. It is necessary for those who can. Or else, why did the Prophet ﷺ leave to Medina once he was able to? Why did some of the Sahaba leave to Abyssinia once they were able mm -hmm. to? And of course, this doesn't necessarily mean the borders, the national borders. It, it, you know, sometimes you, you have to do what you can with what you have. But what I do want to say here is something that's very overlooked, which is that Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah, speaks about the importance of the hijrah of the heart, which is mandatory on everybody, whereas the hijrah of the body, hijrah means migration, to migrate to a place more pleasing to Allah. So he says that, that migrating away from uh, a lack of commitment to Allah, migrating to a place of devotion and genuine consistent obedience to Allah is mandatory on every Muslim. Whereas the migration of the feet, the migration of the caravans, right, the relocation of your residence, that might be or might not be, depends on so many factors. It's a fiqhi discussion even, it's a legalistic discussion uh, for a later time. And so I, I, I want to uh, say that whomever performs hijrah with their heart, you know, change of heart, if you will, new leaf, then, and he cannot find a better location, physical location for his family, mm. Allah will not let, let your effort and you exerting the only capacity you had, which was this, right, go to waste. You know, uh, there's something so profound that I reflect on these days. And it is the fact that we always say, and we should keep saying this, parents need to be privy to what their kids are consuming. Parents need to yeah. not live in oblivion. You need to be aware of the dangers yeah. out there. That is true. But like I said, you will never be able to be aware of it all. 
And so you need a safety valve, you need a safety mechanism. What is a, a greater safeguard than your investigative prowess, your ability to be on top of things? Because you'll never be able to do it in a way that's waterproof. We'll say it's taqwa, instead of yeah. taqwa. Yeah, The verse in Surah An-Nisa, you fear for them, fear Allah. You know, you know, you know the ayah in Surah Al-Kahf? When, when Allah Azza wa Jal sent in the middle of nowhere, right? You worry about leaving your kids in the middle of nowhere. He sent in the middle of nowhere Musa alayhi salam and Al-Khadir radiallahu anhu alayhi salam. He sent them to, to rebuild that wall for those orf those powerless orphans, those vulnerable orphans. And then the justification was what? وَكَانَ أَبُوهُمَا صالحة, Because their parents were righteous. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, uh, he says something profound about this ayah. He says, لَمْ حُفِظَ بِصَلَاحِ بِصَلَاحِهِمَا بِصَلَاحِ أَبِيهِمَا That they were protected because of the righteousness of their parents. He says, وَلَمْ يُذْكَرْ This is the part that catches me. وَلَمْ يُذْكَرْ لَهُمَا صَلَاحًا And Allah did not mention any proof to say that these kids were righteous. It's Meaning, <laughs> like you're trying so hard to like manually make your kid righteous, your righteousness is going to have a greater effect on your children than how much ever amount of righteousness you can, you're going to try to strong arm into them. And by the way, statistically, statistically, this is this is also something easily observable. You know, Yaqeen Institute. Uh, this is, I guess, their neck of the woods and of the 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 studies available so far is that the number one factor towards the transmission of faith, meaning from one generation to the next, is what? It is not school, it is not environment, it is not society. What the number one determinant of what religion the kid will follow is parents. You know, Saeed ibn Musayyib, rahimahullah, he used to say, Ya Bunay, oh my dear son, inni la'azidu uh, I like basically you come to mind and so I lengthen or I increase like more time or more rak'ahs I increase in my prayer and my salah because of you like because you come to mind why he's not praying for him he, he's not he's praying to Allah what do you mean for your sake he explains says out of hope that because of this prayer Allah will protect you for me and the reason I find this, like I reflect on this, is that for people like myself, whose parents came to the, the West, for example, as immigrant minorities who struggled with the language, had to work laborious jobs and didn't have as much time available. Like my mother couldn't read my homework, nevertheless my, the novels I liked reading, nevertheless the, the channels I was watching. And yet, somehow, by Allah's grace, on some level, I was curbed of so many things. How is that possible? She was not helicoptering over me. Neither was my father. They were, cons because they were, remember I said it is necessary when possible. They did all that they could. This is our assumption of them. For the sake of Allah. And so Allah kept His promise of keeping their kids Muslim, keeping their kids on the path uh, in ways they could have never done directly never done manually and like I think about it like what did my mother equip me with of you know philosophical immunity to all this stuff I was going to hear about in high school and college 
What did she equip me with of responses for the doubts against Islam? I remember bringing some doubts to my mother and she gave me answers that at least at that age were totally unsatisfactory. And yet for some reason, I, I did not go, I did not get derailed from being a Muslim. And nowadays I'm trying to investigate, you know, what was so special about my mom and dad. <laughs> May Allah have mercy on my father and protect my mother. And, and now I'm starting to realize she makes dua for her children every single salah. And she's always asking Allah in every single prayer to see his face and his prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And so I always tell myself that you may be, you know, philosophically, polemically more savvy than your parents, but are you as longing for Allah in your dua as your mother and your father were? Because if you're not, your kids may not get spared the way you were spared. That is the number one factor, the righteousness of the parents. Right. I've never seen anything like it. You. It just goes to show you that if you want, you know, your children to be righteous, then you yourself should be exceeding. And even you see a direct effect of, I guess, the children directly replicating their their parents' actions. And I'm realizing it as a as a young father of a, of a two year old, and he just copies me. Whatever I do, he copies. And uh, you just go to realize that the more you set yourself out to be a better example, the children will follow in suit, of course, with the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which we cannot do without. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does all the guiding for you. But I guess I wanted to ask you, so we're going to take by our means, our asbab, our whatever we can do in the real world world to curb, I guess, our our children, our youth from from the harms of society. And I've heard some people go up to really... um, extravagant ends to make sure this happens i'm talking about parental locks on the phones making sure that their, their children don't download anything without their permission and knowing every single search the child goes through and for many of us this is a necessary precaution we must take to protect our children but i guess where do you draw the line between doing your best to make sure that they are protected without over policing them to the point that they're going to rebel and go against you it's it's a hard one but where do we draw the line yeah it's a long one uh because there are so many variables at play here so Mm -hmm. the the ages of your children are a variable and the natures of your children are another variable and the uh the ultimate factor that needs to be considered which it looks for, okay, how will this happen at this age? How will this happen with this child of mine versus that child of mine? Is the pros and cons, right? The benefits and harms, which is the ultimate objective of our sharia, right? Maximizing benefit, minimizing harm. And so after sincere devotion to Allah and realizing you can't do good enough no matter how hard you try, uh, which will, you know, have you rely on Him more than you rely on yourself. I mean, there's a reason why the dua of the prophets for their children is permeates the entire Qur'an because that is critical. Aside from that, you need to realize what are your kids' needs. Uh, And our deen directed us to so much of that. You know, um, though perhaps I should be starting with with primary sources, right, the Qur'an and the Sunnah, what comes to Mm -hmm. mind now is is a statement that was attributed to to Ali radiallahu anhu anhu, uh, when he said, لَعِبْهُ سَبْعًا وَأَدِّبْهُ سَبْعًا وَصَاحِبْهُ سَبْعًا that play with your child for seven years uh, and discipline him for, or teach him for seven years 
and then befriend him for seven years. Uh, and this is very wise and very profound. Uh, and it aligns with so much, concurs with so much. For example, in the Sunnah, seven years old is, is a game changer. And even in, 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 uh, in child psychiatry and child psychology, seven years on the cognitive level is also a, uh, a, a transitional phase, right? Uh, certain things are finalized at five, six, and seven. Seven, you go into a, you learn in a different way, and you know, uh, you can understand abstracts a little better, and so on and so forth. And so, th- think about it like this: play with your child for seven years. That means a lot of things, but of them is that, of course, you're going to discipline on some level, right? If you see one child biting mm-hmm. another one, <laughs> if you see one child yeah. playing with a stove. But it means let the predominant relationship be one of uh, allowing them time and space to be a child. Time and space to be a child. Don't rush things. You know, they say, Whoever tries to get a thing before it's time is, finds himself deprived of it altogether. And so be reasonable. You know, for example, you want your kid to pray. Uh, the Prophet said instruct them at 7 which means what? before 7 don't have that expectation of them meaning instructing them to pray all 5 you know one child psychiatrist the co-author actually for the piece uh, that you uh, you shared some feedback with me on the piece of gender uniqueness and the significance of fathers um, he said to me under 4 years old don't hold it against your child that he can't stand the whole prayer uh, without fidgeting and moving, right? That's just too much. The kid wants to move around. The kid wants to play. And he means that at four, tell him, you should be capable of this. If you can, I'll reward you. If they don't, don't punish them, right? And, you know, th- this is just one of, like, so many examples. I'm just plucking something out of the the bag. Um, and so predominantly playing b- your with your child, befriending them, uh, in a playful way, the first seven years. That has humongous benefits. The Prophet ﷺ would, you know, step down off the mimbar and carry his children back onto the mimbar or his grandchildren. The Prophet ﷺ would allow them to climb on his back. That is huge because that is the groundwork upon which you will build. You know, that is winning their hearts over. That is uh, allowing them to not be stressed out so that they can just sit there and observe the world. Because they say, uh, this is very early by the way, in the first two years, that is when faith is caught, not taught. You know? Um, and so this is how you ensure that they want to associate with you. This is how you ensure that they have this feel-good notion subconsciously about religion and religious people. So all of that, that is our project. Our projects are children. They are investment. You know, we want to meet the Prophet ﷺ with them after he told us have many children. For I will, I seek to outnumber the other prophets mm-hmm. with believers on the day of judgment. So this is how you do that. Uh, you play with them predominantly. Then the next seven years, you teach them. That doesn't mean you're not going to play with them anymore. It means it's going to be predominantly teaching because they can handle it. Of course, with mercy and with gentleness and with patience and otherwise. Uh, and then interestingly, he says, and then befriend him. That's not, we're not saying forfeit your leadership, but realize that at, at 14, 15, that is what? That's kind of puberty. That's adulthood, right? Maturity in, in Islam. Uh, and so that is when you need to stop helicoptering or policing too heavily. Why? For the, so many reasons. First of all, they will have a need to outstep, outstep the shadow of their parents. And so you need to uh, give them a chance to do that, right? 
let them make, uh, you know, not too dangerous mistakes. Let them learn from their own mistakes. Let them feel like they are their own independent because they need that. They need to feel like, you know, a long time ago in, in tribal or village societies, they would call it the rite of passage, right? The ritual that allows you to be seen and validated as an equal. So there's still going to be respect for parents. There's still going to be uh, advice no matter what. But deal with them while keeping in mind that it's difficult for them to accept to be a child in their relationship with you anymore. Their adab and their deen will keep them, you know, behaving that way. But they need to feel like I'm making the decision, not someone else making it for me. That's one of the benefits. That self-esteem, that self-confidence, that maturity needs to be given room to blossom. The other benefit is that if you keep uh, um, a tight grip at that age, uh, then they will always need your grip. Meaning if you're still helping them tie their shoes and brush their teeth and you have to tell them salah time, salah time, salah time, salah time, uh, across the street like this, then when will they ever grow? That is actually one of the biggest problems of you know the crisis of manhood today. Why do we have this phenomena of what they call uh, extended adolescence? Because they were never given any sort of accountability. It's like yeah, you're a grown man. You need to, you know, I taught you right and wrong. Now you face the consequences, right? Let them do that. Uh, don't uh, don't destroy them. You're still going to be hovering from a distance, right? But at the same time, they need to feel like they are adults or else they'll never become adults. You know, interestingly, one of the most beautiful things the Prophet Sallallahu uh, did in this regard that, that uh, our good brother Ammar, Sheikh Ammar Shukri, uh, called our attention to once in a beautiful reflection. He said, we need to help, we need to be better at letting our youth fail. What does that mean? He goes, some of us don't let our youth fail at all. And so if you don't let them fail, they'll never feel like they're the ones succeeding because you've never let go of the wheel. So I'm not driving, right? He said, on the other end, some people let them fail <laughs> in the most destructive ways where they don't have a path back from their failure. That You don't give them a path to redemption. And so to allow them in a very careful, calculated way to take on some risks so that they develop this idea of, oh man, life has consequences is, a, is very important. Uh, and the, mm-hmm. the example he gave from the seerah of the Prophet وسلم, is Usama ibn Zayd. Usama ibn Zayd, you know, was the youngest general among the Sahaba and he was 17 at the time the Prophet وسلم, died. Uh, and he committed a humongous mistake. A humongous mistake. Uh, a few years before that, they were off at a battle and there was a man that was decimating the Muslims. He was just a, uh, a prolific warrior. And... He was dropping Muslims left and right. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, Usam ibn Zayd and an Ansari man, they cornered him, chased him down, cornered him. When he saw that he had nowhere to run and he fell, he said, La ilaha illallah. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, I'm one of you guys. I'm Muslim. And so the Ansari man got uh, hesitant. I can't. I mean, and so he pulled back. Usam ibn Zayd said, I, I, I went through with it. I killed him. So I went back to Medina, I, people said this to the Prophet ﷺ, he went himself to say to the Prophet ﷺ, and he told him, did you actually kill him after he said, La ilaha illallah? Uh, he said, he only said it ta'awudhan, just to like, you know, save his own life. It was so obvious. I mean, he said, did you open his chest to see if he said that to save his own life? Or he said it sincerely? Mm-hmm. You killed him. At, what are you going to do with La ilaha illallah when it comes to the day of judgment? He said, Ya Rasulullah. He said, what are you going to do with La ilaha illallah? When it comes to, and he just kept repeating that. And... 
you know, Usama said, I wish I had not become Muslim until that day. Like, I wish I could just start over. Like, you'd think that Usama, Usama was called Hibbu Rasulillah, meaning the most beloved of the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's kids to him, basically. And he was, not, he was the, the son of his freed slave. So he was, om, he was equivalent to Al-Hassan Al-Hussein, the grandchildren of the Prophet He would carry them both and say, Oh Allah, I love these two, so love these two. Like, so you would think that the ocean of mercy that is the Prophet with the most beloved of people to him, Usama, would just say, you know, may Allah forgive you or something like that. And he would say, Ya Rasulullah, seek forgiveness for me. And he would say, of course. He didn't. He said, how could, he just kept saying that. How could you kill him after he said, La ilaha illallah? What are you going to do with La ilaha illallah on the day of judgment? And so he made him feel, feel the gravity of his mistake. But at the same time, notice this is the beauty of it. He did not allow Usama, this youngster, or any of the Sahaba to disqualify, to dismiss Usama because of his mistake. Right? How do we know that? Because the very last army the Prophet sent before he died, alayhi salatu wasalam, was named Jaishu Usama, the army of Usama. Yes. And so that is a different phase. Uh, and if we conflate these phases, uh, we could do some serious damage to the, the developmental, uh, I guess, milestones that we're trying to uh, check off with our with our investments with our children Sheikh, you've packed in so much that answer and i think i didn't want to stop you at all because you're giving us beautiful advice for all stages of their lives Subhanallah, like looking after your children preparing i, I guess i heard a, a beautiful statement it says prepare your child for the road and don't prepare the road for your child like always make sure that they're Allah equipped Allah. they're ready to 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 go out there and i guess through love, through instilling that bond between you and your child, it's essential to make sure that they're ready for the road. And unfortunately today, I guess when you look at society and mainstream culture, the way they present the father, we grew up watching Homer Simpson, you know, uh, Family Guy, all these mainstream culture representations of what a father is. And it's completely the opposite of what a father is when it comes to Islam. And you wrote an amazing piece I guess you and, and, and the psychiatrist, I forgot what his name was. Dr. Tahir Khwaja. MashaAllah, it was a brilliant piece um, on Yaqeen Institute presenting the, I guess, the significance of having a father present in, in the family life. And I guess I read stuff like we're seeing direct links between alcoholism, incarceration, suicide, unfortunately, teen pregnancy. We're seeing all these, I guess, vices in society directly linked to having an absent father in the home. And I encourage everyone to, to just read that article. And Sheikh, it would be good if you could just drop a few words on that because I felt like it was so important. Bismillah, how do I summarize this? But I mean, we spoke about uh, essentially um, the fact that the same way that mothers offer children something that fathers never can, uh, fathers also offer children something that mothers never uh, fully can. And that we summarize them in three points. Paternal authority. There is something unique about uh, the atmosphere of structure, of discipline, of uh, stability that simply a father's presence in the home offers. And the numbers and the examples uh, are there. But keep in mind that so many, so many kids that get into lots of trouble, um, you know, whether it's juvenile incarceration or uh, 
criminal offenses later, whether it is um, homelessness, uh, dropping out of high school or otherwise. So much of that was because they were not prepared for the road ahead, as you, as you put it. Um, you know, our children in general struggle from many things. Of them is that they thought or their parents assumed that pampering the child or giving them comfort, for sure mercy and gentleness are the default and we should never make the exception the rule. But part of, an unnoticed part of having mercy on your children is to give them, you know, the, the endurance to deal with life as it was meant to be. Life was not meant to be paradise. It was meant to be a road that leads to paradise. So, you know, they speak about in psychological terms as frustration tolerance. The ability to tolerate frustration is so much more important to be given to the child, instilled in a child, because that's like emotional regulation, that's resilience after failure. It's so much more important than offering them comfort because you will not always be there to offer them comfort and even the comfort that you give them will not be, you know, uh, wholesome from every direction. So uh, giving them, and then giving them a sense of meaning also, right? is so much more important than giving them uh, luxury. And so a father uh, offers that paternal authority, which is extremely important uh, for a child to develop this, this resilience, this frustration tolerance, this sense of structure. Um, and the second was paternal affection. And this was two-pronged. Paternal affection, number one, because this is what uh, allows the father to be that uh, representation of authority without the child becoming resentful. So in a sense, it is a reassurance that God, uh, that dad isn't doing this because he hates me. Uh, constant reassurance that my uh, father loves me and so they will understand these moments when the father takes a stand that it's done out of love. The second, research shows that children hunger for different types of love, different types of affection, motherly love and fatherly love. And there has been some uh, extensive studies to try to prove and distinguish the difference. Uh, and there apparently is a, a, a very strong argument as to the difference. But the absence of the father will not just deprive a child, by the way, and the reason we say the absence is because fathers are seen so many times as biological contributors, financial contributors, but their presence is seen as irrelevant. But, you know, the children whose fathers are absent, they are not just deprived of structure and paternal affection. Usually mom has to play the mom and dad role. And any sister, any mom who is forced to do this by her circumstances is a superhero. Or, But someone who, who chooses to assume that it is not very uh, sabotaging to the upbringing of the child. If a child needs paternal affection that much, then how much more of maternal affection do, do they need? But when the father is absent, the, the third element he brings is financial security. And so if the mom has to assume that role and now work on the financial security of the family and 40-50% of the time it doesn't work anyway, then those that it did work with, the mom offered financial security, it was at the expense of offering her child emotional fulfillment, maternal emotional nurturance and fulfillment. 
And so it is so sad that we are in a time now when people think that one parent can do it, a single parent home, or think that, you know, the role reversal can be done just arbitrarily. Like we can just have mom work and have dad just, you know, heat up packets of, uh, of uh, you know, frozen uh, breast milk and problem solved. No, there are so many factors beyond that that are hugely consequential. Uh, that we're just being superficial about to justify the status quo uh, that has been imposed on us, by the way, by a materialistic society that values men and women by the amount of money they put on the table and this misconstrued sense of equity that if you both aren't doing this, then one of you is less valuable than the other. And then some men even have imbibed this and said, you know what, I should give her as much of a chance at being outside and doing this as uh, myself and so I'll be the one to stay home and interestingly I'll just say this one last point Mm. that choosing to do this voluntarily is not even allowed uh, in a sense in Islam why like in Islam the scholars all agree that the default in the first seven years of life is that custody if there's a divorce goes to the mom why because the child is not a bargaining chip between the man and the woman. The decision is made ultimately about the best interests of the child. And there should be no doubt that the best interest of the child in those years is to spend their nights with mom, right? To spend that time with mom. And so to arbitrarily give that up is not even allowed for her. If she would say, I'm going to give the dad the custody, she wouldn't be allowed to under Islamic law. Why? Because it would be detrimental to the child. Even if she's willing to forgo that right, she can't forgive that child's right to have the presence of the mother uh, in their life in these most crucial years. And so don't mess with the balance, right? I was just sitting with with a doctor explaining to me on a biological level, he's a neonatologist, how we just think that it's so harmless. Like he was speaking about, and I'm sorry, this is inshallah not a rant, Mm. but it's all about the balance that Allah created in the cosmos. He said to me that people volunteer for cesarean section to deliver their children he says and they think oh it's harmless uh and they don't realize that the process including the the stress and anxiety including coming in contact with certain uh, uh bacteria and filth even on the way out with a natural delivery is actually the first fight the baby needs to fight to get their immune system jump started yeah so oh yeah nice clean cut and pull the baby out mm. No, you don't realize it yet what you've done. And he said to me again that they pulled, you know, uh, lactose for years on end. This was overturned recently out of baby milk because they said it makes no sense whatsoever when the baby doesn't have the enzyme in its stomach, lactase, to break down lactose. And so it made no sense that uh, mommy's milk has lactose or that a formula would have lactose. He goes, and only now did they realize the reason Allah put lactose, that protein, in the milk even though the baby can't break it down, is so that bacteria shows up to break it down and that bacteria becomes an easy fight for the baby and now the baby has an immune system so it doesn't die from some other disease. Like the list is endless. The equilibrium of Allah. Allah says, you know, know, we're not against science, we're not against Mm -hmm. medicine, but if it ain't broke, don't fix it. (laughs) You know? Uh, Do not transgress in the balance. I guess Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has set forth a balance that we shouldn't 
mess with and the balance of you know giving a child a mother giving a child a father and giving a child a family to belong in this is all set to protect the baby to protect the child and to be um nurture and foster a society uh jazakallah khairan sheikh it's been no no you can never go over time sheikh a, a brilliant beneficial oh, conversation yeah. i personally enjoyed it I definitely find that this will be a resource or an asset for f- uh, Muslim parents, future Muslim parents, and something I'll definitely refer to back, inshallah, as my child grows to be older and gets into those harder years. Inshallah. Oh, no. Hopefully Allah you find better us. resources by then. <laughs> Allah protect us. Jazakallah um, khairan, Sheikh. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's an honor. I pray this podcast is uh, of success and benefit for generations to come, Sheikh. For those that are watching, Jazakallah Khairan, if you've made it this far, don't forget to like, subscribe, share to your friends and give us feedback for future episodes, inshallah. It's been a pleasure. So we'll see you next time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. If you enjoyed this video and everything else that One Path does and would like to see us produce more content, then please support us. Go to www onepathnetwork.com you can support us from as little as one dollar a day much love and appreciation and may Allah bless you all